Do you know what complicates that basic Frankenstein type scenario? Yes, she essentially is in the monster role there. And, and the whole notion, and this is something, if you watch the 1931 Frankenstein, the same thing comes through. Like, well, if you assemble a body from spare body parts, you know, <laughs> basically grave robbing. In the Frankenstein from 1931, well, you know, the brain that you stole and you put in was a criminal brain. The pseudoscience of phrenology, basically, somehow this is a criminal brain at some cellular level. Uh, but in this case, the variant is, of course, that, you know, it's, it's got a fetus's brain. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show brought to you by Howard Community College, where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about American fiction and poor things, two movies up for several Academy Awards, and we're going to start with American fiction. Okay, Mike, I don't know where you want to start with this, but I'll just start off by saying I loved this movie. And when I saw it in the theater, one of the best things about it was how much the entire audience was into it. I mean, the laughter, it was just such a community experience, just absolutely wonderful in all respects in terms of an experience at the movies. How about you? I also had the good fortune to see it with a very full audience and to have a, an audience discussion afterwards as part of a film program. I share that with you because I likewise felt this audience was totally pulled into it. I mean, you can tell when people are, it's, it's so quiet in the theater, except when they're laughing, which is a good <laughs> sign. And you know what? I'm so glad you opened this way because what struck me about the film more than anything was there's a really nice balance in this film between the comedy and the drama. It really registers that way. And just to set the stage, if folks are not familiar with the film already, it deals with the issue of race, but through the prism of the publishing world. And so it's inherently interesting there because a lot of the racial issues that are dealt with, I don't want to say that they're familiar in the sense of, you know, one yawns at them. I don't mean that at all. But what I mean is these are issues we know. And yet we might not know as much about a particular industry, if I can call the publishing industry that, and how it gets played that way. And that adds a lot of texture to the film. And there are other things that add texture to it. But let's look at the core situation here. Jeffrey Wright, and we'll talk more about his terrific performance, but Jeffrey Wright is playing a writer. And when you think about the issue of race and, and writers, how readily... I'll plead guilty here. I think we all need to some extent. Um, when we think about issues of race and class, et cetera, how quick we are to put people in a box, you know, in terms of uh, assumptions and expectations, right? You know, you, that, that first encounter, oh, well, she's going to be this kind of writer. He's going to be that, whatever. And how, how unfair that can be and just how incomplete that can be. So why do I preface it that way? Well, He's a, you know, he's a black writer, and yet what does he write? Well, he looks to ancient Greek mythology for his source material and the Greek playwrights and all, and he's doing modern novels that are sort of riffing on that or playing off that in a very scholarly way. And so he's a professional writer, a capable writer and all that, but he's not going to have a huge fan base. People won't know quite what to do with him. And he's a super serious guy. And maybe I should start talking about the performance already. The character's name is Thelonious Ellison. Now, what could be more serious for a, <laughs> for a Black writer than a name like that? Because, of course, Thelonious is playing off a Thelonious Monk, and this writer goes by the nickname Monk. You know, this super serious kind of idiosyncratic jazz genius. And the last name Ellison, of course, Ralph Ellison. So when you have both those names together, my gosh, you know, you might as well just put PhD after it, right? <laughs> this guy has arrived. And yet the thing is, you know, he's so super serious that he's really upset 
that his own publisher and, and the publicists and all, all the managerial types, they're not crazy about the books that he's writing. And what really, and very funny, this is like funny and not funny, very early in the film, like a lot of writers, you want to see where you are in the bookstore, right? You don't want to be on the remainder table, <laughs> you know, or sometimes what they actually refer to as the dump table. You don't want to be there with your books. But where do they have him filed? Well, they have him listed under African-American fiction which strictly speaking is accurate. He is African-American, it's fiction and so on. But he feels, and I think quite rightly and logically, that his book should be filed under mythology. And so he's complaining to the bookstore clerk. And and this is just an employee, right? Like, well, you know, sir, this is where we have your book. But that's already a very insightful scene, isn't it? And so that already tells us that this man is not feeling comfortable with his place in the publishing world and how he's perceived. So anyway, the driving engine for the story is that he will uh, become aware of, encounter a best-selling Black writer, female writer, Sintara Golden, played by Issa Rae. And she is playing to expectations. We'll talk more about her in terms of her sincerity and her whatever. But she has published a book called, and I'll give the exact title, and I have these quotation marks here, lest one think I'm saying this. The quotation marks, uh, Weez lives in Dog Ghetto, close quote. And she's on the TV talk shows, and she's a big hit, and this and that. He is sitting in the audience for one of these tapings, and he's watching it. And Jeffrey Wright's performance is so great because it's so understated. It's what I call a raised eyebrow performance. While she's talking to the talk show host and playing it up, and the audience is standing and applauding, and racially mixed audience, black and white, and people are just thrilled with her as a writer. He's sitting there, the look on his face is priceless, and he actually will sort of like raise an eyebrow, and you can imagine the volcanic fury within him. But on the surface, he's relatively calm with it. Now, I'll close off my lengthy preface by saying this. That's sort of the setup for it. Now, and then he's going to have to decide, well, what kind of book should he write next? And Marie and I'll talk more about this. But that's sort of the, the staging ground for what's going to happen. If the film had remained just at that level of, you know, the super serious black writer and, you know, how he's miscategorized in various ways and how he might want to try to recalibrate the image, et cetera, and his interaction with this best-selling writer, that would be enough right? That's enough story material. And yet, and yet, and yet, what really elevates it is not just the publishing world context, that kind of texture, but also, as we'll talk about presently, his family relations in terms of his mother, his sister, his brother, and so on. It really is like fabulous in terms of being fully envisioned. And so it's a very full viewing experience. I mean, the film itself is a little under two hours, but boy, is it full of detail. So with that prolonged preface, I now turn it back to you. I want to call out Issa Rae because I absolutely love her and she's really, really good in this. Obviously, Jeffrey Wright is also really good in this. And, you know, there were so many great lines. I mean, it's a scathing satire in so many ways, but some of the lines were just so great. I was scribbling them down in the dark. So at one point, Jeffrey Wright's character is talking and he says, you know, the editors want a black book. They have a black book. I'm a black man and that's my book. So, yeah. you know, some, some of the, it's like it just gets right to the point. And then there's a joke in there about the cover of one of these stereotypical books, you know, how they're going to try to sell it. And they're saying, well, we'll, just, we'll put Michael B. Jordan in a do-rag and a tank top on the cover. And I mean, some of these lines just slayed in the theater. Uh, then there was another, I will eat your sweater vest for dinner. Just the writing in this is so, so witty. And, and this you know is what- one of the categories that's up for an Academy Award, which is Core Jefferson's adapted screenplay of the book, which is Erasure by Percival Everett. 
Well, you know what's so striking in that respect? This is Cord Jefferson's directorial debut. As a writer, he's got experience on shows like Watchmen and uh, The Good Place and so on. So he has the writing chops for television scripts. But in terms of a feature film, this is this is his start. And I thought, wow, what a way to start here. And when you mention some of the funniest lines, a lot of the biggest uh, laugh lines, a lot of the satire comes within the publishing world at the level of your agent, the publicist and all. And these may be well-intentioned people, but it's commercial enterprise. So they're the ones trying to strong arm him to, well, why don't you write something that people actually want to read? And, and, then, and then the way in which they'll market it. So to cut to the chase to some extent here, he decides like under a pseudonym, he will write the kind of novel they want, right? And so he takes on this, this hilarious pseudonym, it's Stagor Lee, right? Who's supposedly like an ex-con and he's going to tell his story, whatever. And, you know, it's a, a pathological biography, if you will. But the title of the book is My Pathology. And, and so it just, it hits every stereotypical button that way quite deliberately. And then what's shocking, he does it just like, oh, yeah, you want that kind of book? I'll give you the kind of book. And then the shocking thing is that people like it. And it does well. But but then he has to decide, like, ethically what to do. I, I mean, should he should he own up that he is this other person? Should he maintain the facade? And then the complications are those of, of a classic satire. Once you're in, you're in deep, right? Because a TV talk show wants you on the air and, and people want to interview you. And how do you handle this? And how do you explain it, like, to the next of kin and the people around you? Who knows and who doesn't know? kind of thing. And boy, that's a lot of fun to watch, isn't it? I mean, it's not fun for him, but it's it's fun for us. It's fun for us. And I also want to mention Sterling K. Brown, who's also nominated for Best Supporting Actor. It's always nice to me when you see an actor that you know from something else, and in this case, other movies that he's done, but, but mostly the uh, TV show This Is Us. So having a familiar character like that show up in a completely different role which I also think he did an amazing job. And the other thing that this is just kind of a throwaway thing that maybe not a lot of people will recognize, but I thought it was brilliant. There was a show on called Younger, which was about the uh, publishing world and about a character who's in her 40s who passes for Younger to you know break back in while trying to reestablish her career. And one of the characters in there is Miriam Shore as a book editor. And she shows up in this movie as you know someone in the book industry so when you see her it feels real because you're like right because she was the book editor and younger so those nice little moments i also really appreciated they're small moments but i think they make it into a movie you, you just really appreciate because it's so much fun well when you mentioned supporting cast members you're absolutely right sterling k brown plays his brother I would also mention uh, Tracy Ellis Ross as his sister and Leslie Uggams as, as their mother. And I don't want to say too much more about the family connections because there are some twists and surprises, you know, along the way there. But just simply that this is a fully envisioned family, as I mentioned earlier. And, and so that adds so much to it. And you know what? That's actually the more seriously dramatic part of the film in a lot of ways in terms of things that happen within that family. Because otherwise, if it had just been the publishing world satire, it would have been a very good film. I'm not, I'm not saying otherwise but it would have been at that level. But this gives it a more texture, because sometimes, let's put it this way, some of the publishing world satire is pretty far-fetched. In other words, like, like when you get to the publicist, I mean, it's like very funny, but it's like it's like borderline sketch comedy at times, mm -hmm. a very good sketch comedy. And so you would laugh at that level, but, but when you then have this underpinning of his actual family dynamic, some of that is dead serious material, and yet you'll have one scene leading to the other and back again. And that's what I said at the outset, the balancing act between comedy and drama. That's really hard to maintain. This film maintains it. You know, another thing that's kind of subtle is that if he succeeds in becoming very famous, all of his personal life is going to become 
front and center. You know, in a way, being obscure means all of the dirty laundry in your family doesn't get aired. It's just a small subplot, but. Well, it's a significant subplot in the sense that, you know, he has such a serious outlook on life and, and a sense of privacy. He's not looking for, I mean, he wants to do well as a novelist, but he's not looking to be, a, you know, a grandstander or someone who's in the celebrity gossip columns. He doesn't want that at all. And yet the, his alternate identity, the Stagger Lee, is a nationwide phenomenon. People want to know all they can. And you're absolutely right, Marie. Then you would have to at some point open up or the media would open you up in terms of your actual life and all that. So he's in a real quandary there in all sorts of ethical ways, all sorts of personal ways. And that's the kind of emotional messiness that makes for a good film. Because you can't just simply, just as, as I said at the outset, you know, our tendency to put people in boxes in terms of what I always call assumptions and expectations. This film questions so much. Much of that, so much is called into play. And you realize that, you know, this guy has to really make some big decisions because after all, his alternate identity is a best-selling writer, which he'd never been before. And, you know, he can play that game. He knows how to play it. Should he continue to play it? And then what does that mean in terms of basic issues of, you know, truth, honesty, all, all those nice moral things, but how should he play those out? And so, again, I'm, we won't spoil anything in terms of how the film is resolved, but that's one reason why the viewers are so wrapped as they watch it, aren't they? Because you want to see what the, what is this guy going to do? Yep. And it's very, very witty, as we've said in, in many ways. So it has been nominated for Best Music. And I wanted to quickly ask you, did you think that given his name was Thelonious and they call him Monk, but shouldn't there have been just like one jazz moment in there with the real Thelonious Monk? I think that was a missed opportunity. You know, I generally would agree with you, but my feeling is that it, there are various cultural touchstones here, like that you'll have a, someone from the jazz world, someone from the literary world. I mean, that's part of the satire, actually. When I say satire, these are, you know, figures I revere, too. But but just to have all those names kind of cobbled together and becoming your name, I mean, that is that is a funny idea in its own way. Whether there should have been more of that by way of actual jazz, I don't know. I, I mean, actually, when you mentioned smaller elements, what I call like grace notes, literally grace notes in the film, like in the casting, as you mentioned, it would have been fun actually to have him somehow just like walk into a club or just whatever, even in an elevator. Not that monks played on elevators, but <laughs> people would get off on the next floor probably. But, you know, quite seriously, that it would be fun actually to have a scene like that where, yeah, you'd get some. I mean, I love Monk and, and the music is so distinctive, you know, like in 30 seconds or less, you just know, even if you're not a big jazz fan, you think, well, that's Thelonious Monk. And there are reasons for that in terms of how he composes things. And you're right. It would be fun to have that played up a little bit more. You know, maybe there'll be a director's cut at some I was point. just going to make that We're going to say that? We're going to say that? There might be a scene we're not aware of where that's the case. Because additional grace notes actually would make, they would burnish the film even more. They would enhance it even more because this film um, has a structure that allows for that. You know what I'm getting at? You could you could add something like that and it would just be another smile along the way. And and those are brief scenes. We're talking about a minute or so to add something like that. So yeah, the film now is 117 minutes. So if it takes your advice, it goes up to 119 minutes and that's, that's fine too. Yep. Gets it right under the level. All right. So it's nominated for music, nominated for best picture. Nominated for Jeffrey Wright for Best Actor, Supporting Actor for Sterling K. Brown, Adapted Screenplay. Is this movie your pick for any of those awards? 
What's embarrassing potentially for me is you and I are making predictions right now. And then by the time people are watching us, we'll be either very right or very wrong. And I'll be wrong forever because there it is in the archives that I'm wrong. But let me put it this way. I really like this film a lot, but this year's Academy Awards has got a lot of strong contenders. And your question is totally valid, so I will answer it eventually. So, <laughs> so, so uh, of the categories it's nominated in, I, I think the one I feel most strongly about would be Best Actor, Jeffrey Wright. I'm not holding this up against the competition at the moment. I'm saying within the film itself, the single strongest category, I think, is Jeffrey Wright's performance. So there's your answer. All right. Mine is the Screenplay Award. I think this is the best screenplay written last year. I'll agree with you on that. I mean, so let's say that, you know, between the actor and, and the screenplay, I mean, those are the two categories where I would say it's strongest. Yeah. In terms of things like best picture and supporting actor, I mean, there, there are a lot of folks competing this year who deserve it. Right. So, you know, at some point, if, if you said this guy or that guy, you know, I say, yeah, she's good. Yeah, he's good. I could go with any number of things. But but I do think Jeffrey Wright's performance really just impressed me so much because, you know what, a lot of actors would have been showboating. A lot of actors would have really run with that in a satirical way. And I love actors who underplay. It's the raised eyebrow performance again, you know, and I love that. So many scenes and my eyes drawn to him oftentimes because he's not doing anything. He's not saying anything, but it's all registering somehow in the face. That can be terrific acting. It's underplaying the role. Uh, but yeah, that you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. The screenplay. I mean, that's such a smart script. It is. It is. It is very smart script. That's a great word for it. Let's move on to Poor Things, a movie that while I was watching, I was just so amazed at how bizarre it was. And I thought, this is like a Wes Anderson movie on acid. So I'll start off by saying, I do not think this movie is for everyone. But for what it does and what it has going on, I mean, there are 11 Academy Award nominations for this movie. Just the way it evokes this weird world. It's so vivid. The details are so interesting. But how do we how do we set up this movie to tell people how incredibly bizarre it is? Well, let me give a little bit of background. The director is Yorgos Lanthimos. Previous films are The Lobster, The Favorite, Dogtooth, Killing the Sacred Deer. I have very mixed feelings about this director. I understand and appreciate everything you just said, and I share that to a large degree. My feeling is this. This is a director who is a, a surrealist with a vengeance. Yes. Um, and, and, <laughs> and that's why Marie said earlier, this is not for all audiences. It's not for everybody. And let me first off say what I really love about this director. I always talk about directors in terms of auteur theory, what's distinctive. This is a distinctive director. And so all props there. Now, where did the props go? Well, at the level of production design, just mm -hmm. at the level of creativity, brilliant filmmaker in a lot of ways. So that's all on the upside of it. On the downside of it, and this is throughout the career, I've always had this reservation. Sometimes when you say, you know, like so weird, I think sometimes it's like weird for the sake of being weird. It doesn't always seem to have a purpose or point or whatever. And so I find it initially engaging and then somewhat tiresome after a while. But it's kind of a stretch for me that way. Speaking of a stretch, this film has a running time of 141 minutes. That is a stretch. And that's why, it, much as I could admire it scene by scene, it was starting to wear me out. What ultimately held me here was this, and I like this film, Poor Things, more than some of his other films. What held me is 
the essential Frankenstein type storyline. We should almost have done a show where we talk about this and Lisa Frankenstein, but in, <laughs> terms of, in terms of this film, that really helped me. And I'll turn it back over to you in terms of discussing that storyline, because the story itself, to the extent there is one, and there is, it has a picaresque structure. It's episodic, it rambles, it roams as the principal character does. Picaresque stories tend to ramble in Rome. It's all about tangents, what's next on the road. And such stories tend to have a long running time rather than a short one. So that's endemic, I think, to, to what we're talking about here. But what held me essentially was, again, the Frankenstein type story gives it a narrative spine that carries mm -hmm. it all the way through. And moreover, and Maria will talk more about this in terms of the characters and the actors, it's so beautifully characterized, it's so beautifully embodied that way that those performances really carried me through the film. So ultimately, yeah, I would recommend it with the caveats that both of us have already expressed. Well, I will say one of the Academy Award nominations is for Emma Stone. I like Emma Stone anyway. I thought she was incredible in this. Emma Stone plays a character who has attempted suicide and was rescued by Willem Dafoe, who uses her unborn baby's brain to transplant into her to save her life and reanimate her. So she starts off learning everything for the first time, the way, you know, the Frankenstein monster also is, but also because, you know, it's a child's brain and everything is carnal. She can't be reasoned with. It's like a two-year-old, but in an adult body, which creates a real sense of that surrealism you were describing. She's beautiful. She looks like an adult and yet she is feral. And that is part of what makes it so watchable. Also, it's nominated for costuming and makeup and hair. All of those things are really amazing in the film. They really create the sense of a world you've never seen before, but somehow part of our world. Do you know what complicates that basic Frankenstein type scenario? Yes, she essentially is in the monster role there. And, and the whole notion, and this is something, if you watch the 1931 Frankenstein, the same thing comes through. Like, well, if you assemble a body from spare body parts, you know, <laughs> basically grave robbing in the Frankenstein from 1931, well, you know, the brain that you stole and you put in was a criminal brain. The pseudoscience of phrenology, basically, somehow this is a criminal brain at some cellular level. Uh, but in this case, the variant is, of course, that, you know, it's it's got a fetus's brain. It's got a, a baby's brain, if you will. So as Marie said, she's got an adult body, but it's a baby's brain. And, and so the physical performance is impressive because, you know, you see the kind of stumbling, the awkwardness, learning to walk kind of things. Boy, that is like so, when I say entertaining to watch, it's just like bizarrely entertaining, right? It's just, you know, stumbling around and all that. But the real complicating wrinkle on the Frankenstein story is, yes, she's been kind of cobbled together and experimented on and whatever, but her rescuer, if we can call him that, I don't know what we should call him, but Dr. Godwin Baxter, the Willem Dafoe character, he himself has a, a kind of checkered <laughs> background that way. Look at his face, which is all chopped up. He's been experimented on, worked on. So it's almost as if one monster is now in the process of creating another <laughs> one. And Marie, what did you think of that? I thought that was a delightful premise there that have not just the mad scientist doing this, but a mad scientist who himself had been subjected to treatment like this. And also that his name is Godwin. And when she calls him God, you don't realize until later in the movie that it's a shortening of his, of his name. It just works so perfectly. Well, you know where that also riffs on the original. When I say the original, I don't mean the Mary Shelley novel at this point necessarily from 1818. I mean the 1931 Frankenstein that has spawned so many sequels and remakes. Uh, Colin Clive, who plays Dr. Frankenstein there, in the moment of creation, he's just thrilled to see that the monster, brilliantly played by Boris Karloff, is coming to life. And he has that famous scene where he says, 
in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God. And they are keenly aware of that in this film to call the character Dr. Godwin Baxter. So you're absolutely right, Murray. I mean, you know, to play off of that. And you know, in a story like this, if you think of yourself as God and you are creating life like this or reanimating it, you are violating the laws of what I'll call mother nature. And that's always a bad idea in science fiction and horror, because if we'll go well or we'll go south, we'll head south. It's not going to turn out well, typically, in stories like that. And so the arrogance, the ego of a scientist, you know, creating life like that. So it, it fits a template of, of, you know, what we expect from horror films with the mad scientist. But again, the fact that both of them have been so tampered with and altered, it's really funny, actually, just to watch them together. It's like, are there any normal people in the room? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I also should mention that uh, Mark Ruffalo is terrific in this, and he's uh, intentionally so. He has this bird-like silhouette, specifically that of a puffed-up pigeon. And he's wonderful in this, and he provides, you know, the charlatan who comes along, sees a way to take advantage, and does... But whether or not he prevails is actually something I'll let the uh, audience find out on their own. How did you like Mark Ruffalo in this movie? Oh, I did. I think the supporting cast is quite good here. It's one reason why I stayed with it. It was just that, you know, as she goes on her adventures, the people she meets. And I'll very quickly mention, when you mentioned like little grace notes in terms of something in the script or an actor popping up like that, in a very small role is Hanna Shigula as one of the people met. And, you know, for real film buffs, she was the iconic actress working with Rainer Werner Fassbender in all those classic German films. And now she uh, is 80 years old and doesn't work that often, at least work we see here. So when she pops up in the film, the film geek and me was so excited there. I thought, that's Hannah Shigula, and she still looks great. Does she have to be there? No, of course not, but she's there. Uh, if it's a picaresque story, why not? You know, I love those little twists and turns of who's going to pop up in the next town. And because of that fabulous production design, you're mesmerized as the story goes along. So all my reservations to the, to the contrary, it, it's very watchable that way. Now, I'm glad you brought up the production design and the set design because it is exquisite. And I'll just mention all the things that this movie has been nominated for. Makeup and Hair, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, that's Emma Stone, Supporting Actor, Mark Ruffalo, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, Film Editing, Production Design, and Costume Design. Now, I think this is a real contender for costume, makeup, and hair. I think Emma Stone's got a real shot. I think the cinematography is incredible enough that it's got a shot as well. And I'm not asking you to guess what wins. I'm asking, you know, you're on the Academy. What are you voting for? Any of these categories for this film? Of those categories, the strongest categories, and frankly, probably the most likely to pick up prizes would be those production credits. Use the perfect word. It's exquisite at that level. When you get to the major categories, picture, actors, yeah, you could make a case and you're making it for it, but there are other worthy contenders and more competition, if you will. But you get to the production credits and yeah, there are other worthy contenders, but boy, the film is a knockout at that level. And, and so I could see it picking up. And I, it, it's demeaning to say these would be like consolation prizes. They're, they're well-deserved prizes, right? But I think it's at that level where the film would be most likely to, to get you know, actual award recognition. Me too. As much as I love this, I don't think it's going to get Best Picture, if only because all the people going to see it would, you know, afterwards, knowing that it won, would be like, what, what is this? It's like and they would said. hold it against us. They'd hold That's it right. Us. We'd get the <laughs> oh, grief <no>. over it. <laughs> well, that does bring us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other episodes at atmhcc.podbean.com. And you can also find us on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you have ideas, suggestions, or comments, you can email us at movies at howardcc.edu or on Dragon Podcast social media, where you can interact with us. Give us a like, drop a comment, and share our content with others. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then.